You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Now that all that business is out of the way, I am pleased to introduce today's speaker, Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. St. Julian Varnon is a PhD student in history at the University of Pennsylvania and a Penn Presidential PhD Fellow. Her work examines how the presence of people of color shaped ideas and understandings of race, ethnicity, and nationality policy in the Soviet Union, East Germany, and post-Soviet space. She is a regular commentator on Russian, Ukrainian, and American affairs in national media outlets, and we are <laughs> excited to have her here with us today. Please join me in welcoming Kimberly. Okay. Oh. I'm in your brain. <laughs> I am the most socially awkward national commentator you'll probably meet. Um, so before I get started, can everyone hear me? Okay. I am from Southeast Texas. I quit trying to hide my accent. If you don't understand me, just let me know, because sometimes I will drop vowels and elongate them for days. Um, so today's talk is Black Like Us, African-American Travelers in Soviet Central Asia. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of background information about where this project came from, because if you're a graduate student, we write a lot of papers. And sometimes you write papers just because you have to write a paper, and sometimes you write papers because you found this little thing that really you know, just invites more investigation. And so at Penn, we have a course for all graduate students in history that's required, and it's a year-long course, and we have to produce a research paper at the end. So this was that paper. Um, and it came from me trying to figure out what I'm going to do for my dissertation. And we're not going to talk about that because there's this thing called a war going on in the two countries that I focus on. So I'm not thinking about that. But I do have a dissertation perspective due in a few weeks. Um, so I wanted to talk about this thing I kept seeing when I was reading black newspapers about Soviet Union, the black people in Central Asia. And I'm like, wait a minute. I thought there was this magical community of African Americans or Africans who were living in Soviet Central Asia. No. It was Central Asians who were black. And as I was taking this course, I was also taking some uh, courses in Africana studies, so thinking about the sociology of race and race formation. And so I started putting these two things together. And I noticed that often when we talk about blackness in the Soviet Union, it means blackness in Moscow or blackness in Leningrad. Um, occasionally, it's blackness in Kharkiv or Kiev, but it's never really blackness in Tashkent. And so, I had this really interesting you know, paper. I, I was trying to figure out what to do with it. And this is that paper. And this has been a great paper for me. It actually helped me understand that my interest is not necessarily in how African Americans see Central Asia, but how do Central Asians and Ukrainians and Russians see blackness. Um, but from this paper, it's won, I, it won me um, the pen talks. I, I gave this talk. I gave this entire paper in eight minutes. I will not be doing this in eight minutes. Um, but it's a really fascinating project, and hopefully um, I may come back to it, depending on what happens with the war and when archives are open. This may be my dissertation, but at least it'll be my second book if I stay in academia because it's a dumpster fire. So that's kind of where this comes from. And 
Is critical race theory legal in this state? Score! All right, cool. I mean, I'm from Texas, so, you know. So when we think about the Soviet Union, this particular paper is on the Soviet 1930s. It's Stalin's Soviet Union. And depending on when I talk to people or who I'm talking to, if I say the Soviet Union 20s and 30s, you're thinking of the five-year plans, the new economic policy, or you're thinking about the Great Terror and the Holodomor. And so in this way, I'm giving you a new way to think about the Soviet Union in the 1930s. So imagine two worlds. One world is a world of the Ku Klux Klan shooting at your house, lighting crosses on fire in your yard, and terrorizing your children as they go to school. There is no economic opportunity. There are no jobs because the stock market has collapsed and there's this thing called the Great Depression going on. And it's not 2008. It's 1929. On the other hand, in the other world, in this place across the ocean, you have this massive country of millions of people that celebrates diversity, that supports national minorities, that has their languages written down, that produces postcards like this. So this is from 1957. You have people of color together. There is no segregation. So these are the two worlds that African Americans are faced with when they're thinking about where to go and what to do in 1929 to 1933 in particular. So this is also the world, this world here. This is the world in which the Soviet Union thinks about America. In the Soviet Union in the 1930s, if you say African Americans, they immediately think of segregation and lynching. Lynching and segregation become part of this controlling mythos of what the black experience is for African Americans. African-American existence is only one of racial terror. And so these kind of attitudes are going to inform some of the things I'll get into when we think about African-Americans and their interactions with people in the Soviet Union. So I think the most famous of the black travelers to the Soviet Union is probably Langston Hughes, you know, one of the most famous African-American writers and poets. Um, and I will talk about how, this isn't in the paper, but this is a really important story to me because his little tome, it's a little bitty book called A Negro Looks at Soviet Central Asia. It's like that big. And I discovered this. I got lost in Widener Library at Harvard. It's a, a massive library. And I got lost looking for a book about Stalin, as one does. And I was just looking. And I saw this little bitty book. I had no idea there were only two copies in America, one at Harvard, one at Yale. I had no idea. But I had just come back from Ukraine, and I was trying to process what it was like for me as a black person in Ukraine. And which, when I was in Ukraine, I discovered Afro-Ukrainians. Literally, I was crossing Khrushchev, I was going down the main street, and I saw a black person. She saw me. We ran towards each other. And I'm like, what are you doing here? She's like, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm a, I'm a student, Yastudenka. And she said, I'm, I'm Ukrainian. I said, you're what? And that's how I discovered Afro-Ukrainians the summer 2013. And since then, this has been the work I do to try to understand. I had no idea Langston Hughes went to the Soviet Union until I found that book. I had no idea people who looked like me went to the Soviet Union. And so Langston Hughes is our most famous. And if you look at this picture, either one of these pictures, you'll see one of the theories I'm working with. So in this picture on the right, I'm directionally challenged. I get lost in Target. He is not the darkest person in that picture. Langston is fascinated by this. 
the African Americans who go to the Soviet Union, particularly Soviet Central Asia, are fascinated by what you see in this picture. To go to a place across the world that has no African Americans or Africans, but there are people who are darker than you. And so what I play with in this paper, critical race theory, said it again. <laughs> I've given this talk in Texas. I'm from Texas. I was a secondary teacher in Texas. So my joke is still like, I'm going to get banned in like half the states of the country. So I work with critical race theory in terms of if we think that race is not biologically real, but it has real consequences in culture and society. So think about that as our first premise. Then, even though race is not biologically real, phenotypic difference is, and it's visible. So if you operate under the assumption, this is a theory um, through Ami and Wynette, two sociologists, that race has an ocular component. It is through seeing someone, seeing that phenotypic difference, then you have the you know, assignment of various um, attributes. So what I'm playing with is what is the ocular understanding of race do for people who are African American? What happens when they see people like this? People who are darker than them or the same color as them? So that's one part of this story. But that isn't enough to understand how African Americans racialized people in Soviet Central Asia as black. So the other part of this is the creation of a shared history of oppression. And so in my paper, I look at African American newspapers, magazines, journals, but also private journals and private notes to understand why was Soviet Central Asia so important to African Americans? What drew them to Soviet Central Asia, particularly in the 20s and 30s? And it's because of this ocular component that you see people who are black and brown. You also have this imagined history of oppression. And it's this oppression, particularly for Uzbeks, but also people in Turkestan being under the czar and that imagination of racial oppression under the czar. But also this third thing, cotton. There's a material connection, a material similarity for African-Americans, particularly black agricultural specialists from the South, with cotton. To see brown people picking cotton, but there is no overseer. There are no slave cabins. What does it mean to pick cotton when there was no slavery? So these are some ideas that are drawing African-Americans to Soviet Central Asia. And this is why I think it's important to talk about Soviet Central Asia, because the experiences they have and Turkestan and Uzbekistan are not the experiences they have in Moscow. They're treated differently. They're read differently by the Soviet people in Central Asia that they interact with. So Langston Hughes, he is not only the most famous African-American writer, but he's probably the most famous American to visit, the, to, to visit Soviet Central Asia. He actually has a volume of poetry that was written, it was translated into Uzbek, but it's only been published in Uzbek. Um, and David Cioni Moore is currently translating it into English. But he had a fascination with Central Asia because he, what he saw in Central Asia, particularly the advancements for people. And this is also understanding that for many African Americans, many Americans, their knowledge of the Soviet Union is very limited. If you look at American newspapers in the 30s, it's like, Uncle Joseph Stalin, he's crazy, he's evil, communists are terrible, um, until 1941, and then everything changes. But in African-American newspapers, it's different. You don't have the same hatred of communism. You have interest. And the interest is in what kinds of developments are going on in Central Asia. 
Schools are being built. Children are no longer having to leave school early to go, you know, to go into the fields. They can get an education. Women are unveiling, and they're getting more opportunities. But also, and this is key, Soviet Central Asia for many African Americans was an imagined result of what happens when a state rejects racism. That's what they saw in Soviet Central Asia. So this doesn't mean this is all real in Central Asian history, right? This is an imagined understanding of a place that most people in the United States would never step foot in. So when Langston Hughes goes to Soviet um, Uzbekistan and Turkestan, he was the only one who got to go to Turkestan. Um, so let me back up. I sound like my husband's grandma. She says it all the time. Let me back up. Why is Langston Hughes in Soviet Central Asia? So in 1932, you have a group of African-Americans, some are writers, some are actors, they're going to go to the Soviet Union to create a film, a film that would expose the worst parts of American racism. It was going to be called Black and White. And so this group got together, they went to uh, Moscow to shoot the film, and the film does not happen. Why? It depends on who you read. Sometimes it's because Stalin made an agreement with the United States government not to make the film, or it's because the Ford company threatened to stop sending exports to the Soviet Union if they made the film. Either way, the film did not get made. But this group of African Americans, when they go to the Soviet Union, most of them are not communists, and that's something I think it's important to talk about. So a lot of people believe that African Americans into the Soviet Union were communists, or they were duped by the communists. Actually, most of them were not interested in communism. They had very little interest in it. It was about not being in a place that had the Klan and the Great Depression and Jim Crow all in one go. America. So Langston, after the film falls apart, they can go back to the United States where they could spend a few more weeks traveling and seeing the Soviet Union. So a few of the group, I think about a fourth of them, stay and they travel. And of the group, a few of them go to, to, to Soviet Central Asia. Langston Hughes is one of them. He's the only one who gets to go to Turkestan because he got a special pass as a journalist. He was the only one who got one. They let him in. And so he is writing about this, particularly in Cotton, but he's fascinated with how far Soviet Central Asia has come, but how white people talk about how far Soviet Central Asia has come. So to get to Turkestan, he's on a train, and his stop is coming up, and they just throw him out the train. They don't stop. They just like take him and stuff, and they throw him out. They're like, there is no stop. <laughs> you know, good luck, right? And so he like, falls out the train. He has the stuff, and he's walking, and all of a sudden he sees an African-American man walking towards him. He's an agricultural worker. And this is how we discover, well, Langston Hughes discovers that African-Americans are working in agriculture in Soviet Central Asia. And he's fascinated by the culture. He's also fascinated that they don't speak Russian to him. In Uzbekistan, they speak Uzbek to him. In Turkestan, they speak Tur Turkestani to him. They don't assume that he's Russian. But when he was traveling with Arthur Kessler, a, a white presenting author, they would speak Russian. So just in those little bitty glimpses, phenotypic similarity, presumed closeness, and language that wasn't necessarily there. Langston Hughes didn't speak Russian or Uzbek, but they saw him and thought he was a person who would. George Tynes, an African-American agricultural specialist who was helping grow cotton in Uzbekistan, he mentioned how he said, I was a little bit bigger, but they all thought I was an Uzbek. They talked Uzbek to me. We ate Uzbek food. And it was fat, he was fascinated by this because 
he said, and he, it's, it's hard to describe and to put in words what it's like if you go from being the only person that looks like you in a space to being surrounded by people who look like you. And it's hard to put that in words. But it's a familiarity and a closeness that he describes in Uzbekistan that he doesn't describe that George Tynes, once he moves to Moscow in the 70s, and he stayed in the Soviet Union, he doesn't have that same feeling. That feeling is lost. And so this closeness is what you see in how Hughes describes the people that he meets, the way he is fascinated with picking cotton. And you see a picture of him picking cotton. And, the inter and it's really interesting how people react to this picture when I show it. People who are trained in American history are like, what? He's picking cotton? But people who are trained in Soviet and Russian history are like, oh, wow. They see the similarity, the closeness in it. And Langston Hughes, he writes constantly about what possibilities could happen in the American South and how the American South could draw on the lessons from Soviet Central Asia. That you could have people picking cotton and it not be under a system of racial oppression. That you could have people picking cotton and their children are remaining in schools. He was fascinated and so interested in the fact that children in Central Asia continued school throughout the growing period. Children weren't dropping out. When in the South, most children did not go to middle school because they had to go into the fields when it was time to pick cotton. And so Langston Hughes, while he's the most famous, and I think we should celebrate Langston Hughes and his interest in Soviet Central Asia, what happens is he gets treated specially because he's famous. Right? So people are like, oh, well, his experience isn't really representative. He was famous. Cool. I have more examples. But everyone likes to say Langston Hughes doesn't count. Homer Smith. I love Homer Smith. I was getting into this research and I was seeing these articles written by this guy named Homer Smith or Chatwood Hall. He has two names, which is fun when you're going trying to go through FBI archives. So Homer Smith, I call him like the scribe of the black Soviet Union. So I'm going to tell you how Homer Smith, formerly known as Chatwood Hall, ended up in the Soviet Union on the same you know, trip, the black and white film trip, but he stayed in the Soviet Union for 14 years. He was a journalism student in Minnesota, and then this thing called the Scottsboro Boy trial happened. So Scottsboro Boys, nine African-American teenagers, preteens, were accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. They were all sentenced to death, and when the sentence came down, Homer Smith decided it was time to leave the United States. He had been reading in American newspapers, particularly communist newspapers, about how great the Soviet Union was, that there was so much work, there weren't enough workers to do it. So, of course, he went. He was part of this group. And so the interesting thing is he sets himself up like he's not interested in acting. He's not interested in the movie. It's just a way to get to the Soviet Union, as you do, called a side hustle these days. So when he gets to the Soviet Union, he works in the Moscow uh, post office, and he writes. He's a freelancer. He writes for black newspapers. And so when I think about the importance of this shared imagination, this shared history of racial oppression, Homer Smith's writing does a lot to promote that. He's writing for the Chicago Defender, the Baltimore Afro-American. He's writing for black newspapers. These reading publics are not white Americans. He's writing stories that you will not see in the New York Times or the Washington Post. These are not stories the typical white American would care about. But through Homer Smith's writing, we can see the ways in which Soviet Central Asia was presented to African American and, and their reading public. So, the black Uzbeks, a black Uzbek shepherd. 
And so this is a picture from, um, from the newspaper. It's a scan. The land as well as the sheep belong to him and his brothers. That implies private property, which we know did not exist in the Soviet Union, but that doesn't matter. What matters is the Uzbek people have a history similar to that of the American Negro. It is one of suffering and hardships, but unlike the Negro in the rural Southland, these Russians, Uzbeks are Russians, have become land and cattle owners. Now, if I was doing this as a TA, I'd be like, children, you can't call them that and also that. We, we have Soviet nationality policy. They're not Russians, they're Uzbeks. But also, land and cattle owners, right? So what we see here is he's drawing on vocabulary that black Americans know. Land and cattle ownership, why is that important? Because thanks to sharecropping, African Americans have been disenfranchised. They don't have access to land ownership or property ownership. But if these black Uzbeks of Central Asia do, that's an opportunity. That's something that's possible. And you see this a lot. He often describes, particularly Uzbeks, and he worked a lot in Uzbekistan, he calls them blacks, swarthy, dark-skinned. You know, he uses positive terms. The way you would describe an African-American person is how he describes Uzbek people. And so we see here this setup. Uzbek people have a similar history to the American Negro. When you say sharecropping, people in America know what that means. When you say oppression, they know what that oppression is. It's racial oppression. It's not class warfare, right? When you talk about the South, you're talking about racial oppression. And so Homer Smith writes about this a lot. And I have to, I think as we're all language learners, you will get a kick out of this. So he has an article he wrote in 1939, and he's talking about language and learning the Russian language. So what do you think he's talking about? Like, you know, genitive plural, because I still don't get the genitive plural. I'm still yeah. bad at it. Um, you know, it's even more fun, the Ukrainian genitive plurals. A lot of fun, right? No, he's talking about colors. Bieli, chorny. And in this, and this is the thing, if you don't know Russian, this is a really funny story. So in this piece, he writes about how Russia has solved the race problem. That's what it's called, Russia solves race problem. In 1939, people, done. No race problem. Um, so what happens? He's at the hotel, he comes in, and the really lovely Soviet woman at the desk says, oh, Mr. Smith, there's a Chorny woman waiting on you. And he said, what? And she says, yeah, Chorny woman. And he said he didn't expect any black, you know, he knew, he, the, word, the way he placed himself, he knew every black person in Moscow. And he was surprised. And who shows up? A brunette Russian woman. And what do we learn from this? Dear readers, in Russia, there are two colors, black and white. But it's about your hair, not about your skin. And the Russian language learner in me is like, no, I choked through all those colors for a reason. But what does this present, right? But also thinking about Homer Smith is his experience. African Americans and Africans would not be called Chorny in the Soviet Union because it's a racial slur. Who would be called Chorny? Central Asians, people from the Caucasus. Caucasian, actual Caucasians. When I taught in Texas, I'm like, the box you check that says Caucasian, that's fake. You are not from the Caucasus, you can't spell it. So, I just, oh. So, so, thinking about how he sees color, and the way he's trying to present color, 
but also the erasure. And I think this is something that often gets lost. African Americans had a very privileged position in the Soviet Union, particularly those in the black and white film group. So when you think about how they present the racial problem in the Soviet Union, it's been solved. It's because they're still viewing race through the American lens. It's their only experience. It's their only way of understanding race and racism. So no, there's not just Billy and Chorny in Russian, right? But for him, if he's not seeing a Russian or Ukrainian call a Central Asian Chorny and seeing that negative interaction, he wouldn't know that that's negative, right? So it's very interesting how he's presenting it. And a key thing that I think and that I see in, in the readings, that the, the primary sources, you don't have Uzbek voices. They call Uzbeks black. They say they're the blacks of the Soviet Union. They have a history of shared oppression. But you don't see Uzbek voices. And so because if you, you see these Uzbek people as a, as a blank slate, the only thing you see of them is that phenotypic similarity. So it allows them to kind of promote these ideas of blackness that may not actually exist. So for example, this oh, when I read this, I just got like five shades of pink. I was like, oh my god, this is so cringy. So, um, so another interesting newspaper article, it was talking about, it was by Homer Smith, over 60,000 black students are going to Soviet schools. So I just said 60,000 black students are going to Soviet schools. Do you think he's talking about African Americans and Africans? No. He's talking about Kazakhs and Uzbeks going to Soviet schools. But this is the headline that you see if you're reading the Baltimore African Americans, like 60,000 black, what? No. Right? It's not people, black people rendered black you know, through their phenotypic difference. It's how he's trying to promote the Soviet Union and the solving of the racial problem. So another thing that happens is the way they talk about Central Asians in terms of development. And this is what's fascinating. Lauren Miller, who was another actor who was part of the black and white film group, he also wrote for African-American newspapers, Homer Smith, Langston Hughes, they all talk about the types of development in Central Asia, and they praise what the Soviet Union, what the Soviet officials have done in Central Asia. They've taken them from you know, being underdeveloped, and now they've brought them to civilization. So this praise of Western civilization is a constant in these kind of interactions. And what I've, I'm fascinated by is that you don't have this understanding of solidarity between oppressed black and brown people because of the West. So the privilege that African-Americans enjoy by being American is still being overlaid in how they see what's happening in Soviet Central Asia. So when you have, for example, Louise Thompson Patterson, I'll show you a picture of her in a second. She is an African-American woman who actually put the black and white film group together. And you have to dig through like 40 monographs and God knows how many primary sources to actually learn. It was a woman who put this film group together, got the funding together, bought everyone's tickets, of course. No one gave her credit. She put the film group together, and her time in the Soviet Union was formative for her. She became a radical feminist because of what she saw in the Soviet Union. And what's missing in our dialogues and discussions about race in the Soviet Union is gender. So often we focus on male understandings of race. But gender adds a different flavor to how we can think about race, particularly in Soviet Central Asia. So what's fascinating is that Louise Thompson Patterson and Langston Hughes, when they go to Soviet Uzbekistan, they meet the same people. They talk to the same people, but the way they interpret their conversations is different. 
So they meet a young Uzbek. Well, she's young. She's like 28, 29. I like to say she's young because I'm older than 28 and 29. Not saying my age. Um, but she meets a young Uzbek woman who is a local party leader. She unveiled in 1923, so four years before the hujum, the unveiling. And she got, she got divorced. She took her son with her. She got death threats. And you live through her life that when she's talking to Louise Thompson Patterson, notes and like pages of notes Louise Thompson Patterson took about her conversation with her. And on the flip side, she also was there talking to Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes writes like a couple of paragraphs about her. Oh, they have women communist leaders in Soviet Uzbekistan and she's fascinating. She goes to college. But what Louise Thompson Patterson took from their conversation isn't Look at what the Soviet Union did for Soviet Uzbekistan. Look at what Soviet dedication to feminine equality did for women. And she compares in her notes that this woman was able to go to school, get higher education. That wasn't possible for black women in the United States. It's very rare that this woman had childcare so she could go to work. Not possible because black women were the childcare in the American South. But also, not just education, healthcare. She is fascinated by the maternal wards that are built in Soviet Uzbekistan. Maternal health care is something that matters. Hospitals, clean hospitals, things that people in the South could only imagine, like black Americans would have no access to this. She saw that in Soviet Uzbekistan. And something that's fascinating, and I put these two things together. She's writing in a letter. It's two days before she's supposed to go to Soviet Uzbekistan. The trip's been pushed back. And she's writing to her mom. She says she just got really sick. She ate something bad. So she was taking her time on going. In 1993, we reveal, she reveals in an interview, she was recovering from an abortion she had had in Moscow that her Soviet translator had organized for her because Lauren Miller and her had what adults do. And she got pregnant. And for her to be able to have access to that health care and the Soviet Union, which in the United States was called this evil, undeveloped country. She had access to health care she would have never had in America. And she's fascinated by this. So what Louise Thompson Patterson sees, and I think this is why we need to think about and really try to work more on black women in the Soviet Union, is because she saw Uzbek women as a dream of what was possible versus when you see how American women write about their Soviet female counterparts. Look at how drab their clothing is. They don't have access to everything. And you see this throughout, how white Americans see the Soviet Union. It's dirty, the lines are long, and it's drab, versus how African Americans see it. It's two fundamentally different worlds that they're walking in. And so Louise Thompson Patterson's time in Soviet Central Asia, it radicalized her to fight for feminine equality in the United States. It also radicalized her fight for racial equality in the United States. She was a radical feminist when the feminist movement in the United States excluded black women. And she saw that as a problem. And her time in Soviet Central Asia just reified her, you know, her dedication to that fight. But if you don't know about Louise Thompson Patterson, if you don't know she put that film group together, she's rarely mentioned by the men. You don't see that that often. But another cool thing, because what would this be without some drama? Love triangles. So if you've never been on a study abroad trip undergrad, drunken 19, 20, 21-year-olds meeting people from other countries. And when there's lots of 
alcohol and cavorting, <laughs> people have relationships. Generally have a short-term nature. 24 hours, maybe. So, 1932, Soviet Union, new people, you're an exotic-looking person, relationships happen. She was not a fan. She writes to her mom. She's constantly complaining about these black men in her group cavorting with white Russian women. Why? She says, because if anything happens, what are they going to write about us? What are the headlines going to be? So this actually happens. So Chatwood Hall, he, Homer Smith Chatwood Hall, he's writing about, he's in there in a bar, you know, in, in this hotel, in the, in the Foreigner Hotel, and people are drinking, getting rowdy, as you do on, you know, cheap Russian drinks. And there's an American journalist, a white journalist, who writes for the New York Times. And there are some of the black men in the film group, and there are some Russian women walking towards them. And he pushes one of them into the group of the Russian women. They start screaming. What could be the headline there? Black men causing a ruckus, running after those white Russian women. And after this incident, they actually sat down and they talk about what could have happened. And I write, and I write about this in another paper. I talk about how black identity shifts when they're in the Soviet Union. There are types of blackness that can be performed for outsiders and ones that can be performed. And being drunk was no longer allowed. You could not drink too much because things like that could happen. And Louise Thompson Patterson, she's angry about this because, and I think this is what's important from her letter, what would have to happen for the Soviets to turn their back on African Americans? If it could just be one scandalous headline, what does that mean about their perception of Soviet racial solidarity. It's fleeting. At the end of the day, they're still white. And you see her understanding that in 1932, when a lot of people in our field haven't realized that in 2022. The ways in which racial hierarchies are seen at the top versus from the bottom. And Soviet Central Asia is a way, I would argue, for us to get at these understandings of race, which is why we have to go beyond Russia and Ukraine when we think about this. So this next group, I think you may know them or know their granddaughter, Yelena Konga. She is Oprah of Russia. Um, and when I, when I taught American history, I'm like, y'all, let me tell you about the black Oprah of Russia, Yelena Konga. So these are her grandparents, Berta and Oliver Golden. They were interracially married in the United States in the 20s. Let that sink in. She's Jewish and he's black. And they go to the Soviet Union, Soviet Central Asia. And when Berta, when Yelena asked Berta, her grandmother, why did Grandpa want to go to Soviet Central Asia? Why not go to Moscow? Why not go to Leningrad? She said, because he felt that his work in Central Asia would matter more to them because they were the same. And I think this is a perfect quote because so often when we only look at people like Langston Hughes, the people who mostly stayed in Moscow, those black agricultural specialists, we don't even know how many there were. Hundreds to a thousand, we don't know. There's very little documentation. Many of them went. They were Tuskegee-trained agricultural specialists. They went from the cotton fields and peanut fields of the south to the cotton fields of Uzbekistan. And so many of them who have written and talked about their experience is because they felt that the people of Uzbekistan would understand them and appreciate them. Not people in Moscow, not people in Leningrad but people who looked like them, who worked with the cotton, would understand them. But most importantly, 
It was send back home the message that African Americans knew how to do things, that they could be agricultural specialists, that they could be productive. Because you have so often in the, in the media in the 1920s and 30s, every story is a horror story about an African American committing a crime, being lazy, not being worth anything. But in Soviet Central Asia, it was a way for them to prove themselves. And they all like have really good you know, times in Soviet Central Asia. A lot of people who worked in Soviet Central Asia, African American men, they stayed there. Um, a few of them died during World War II in uh, Soviet Central Asia. But the idea that what you do in Central Asia would mean more to a Central Asian than to an American or a Muscovite speaks to the power of this idea of shared oppression and ocular similarity. Even if African Americans have no idea who the czar is, they knew that life in Uzbekistan was not good under him. And when they have conversations with, with Central Asians, and often Uzbeks will say, well, under the czar, it was like how it is for black people in the South. It was the same for us. They talk about how in Imperial Russia, if a Russian was walking on the street, how Uzbeks have to move out of the way, how they couldn't eat in mixed settings. And so while in the historiography, we wouldn't consider that racial segregation or racial discrimination, the black people from the United States and the black Uzbeks understood each other and understood those were the same. They were operating the same way. So that's another important connection that I think when we approach the study of race in the Soviet Union, why well, we should turn eastward, but also why we have to get towards and work towards those under-discussed voices because they fundamentally see race differently. You will not get the same understanding of race from an Uzbek as you would from Mayakovsky which also enrages me because Mayakovsky went to America and he wrote all these things about America. What would an Uzbek say about America in the 1920s and 30s? How would they be racialized? Where would they go? Like, these are the questions I'm interested in, but we, we don't have anything on that. But it helps us broaden our understandings of race. And a last thing I'll say is what I try to do with my work and what I'm trying to do with this project is to broaden particularly American discourses of race because they're so focused on how Americans understand race. But my point is, if you think about how African-Americans, once they go outside of America, how they are racialized, how they racialize others, it helps us understand how race functions in the United States, but also helps us appreciate that race exists but can function different, differently in different places. The Soviet Union is officially anti-racist, but there are words that you only hear being called if you're Central Asian or from the Caucasus. That's still racialization. So anti-black racism, that's my whole dissertation right now, is anti-black racism can't exist despite not having a history of black slavery. And it also pushes us who work on Africana and Africana studies to think beyond the Atlantic slave trade in terms of defining blackness and experiencing blackness. Because so often those erased Afro-Russians, Afro-Ukrainians, Afro-Uzbeks, all these people from the diaspora or people who aren't even from the diaspora, black Uzbeks, who have a history and an experience of blackness that is not defined by slavery. So this is kind of what I hope to do with my work, which is kind of currently on fire because the world. But this is what I hope to do, and hopefully you understand a little bit more why Uzbeks are black like us. Thank you.